Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, the host of the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. This is a little extra where we take a break from our normal programming and format to bring something a bit different. This time we talk to Paul Fricker co-designer of Call of Cthulhu, about Full Fathom 5, his scenario that's available print-on-demand from the Miskatonic repository via Drive-Thru RPG. Set on board a whaling ship, the Barclay, in 1847, this is a thrilling, unconventional Call of Cthulhu one-shot with atmosphere and a host of interesting characters. It was the discussion topic for the latest Grognard Files book club that meets on the first Sunday of every month, so it was great to fire questions at Paul following our informal discussion. Also included is a sample of actual play of the adventure, so you can get a sense of the scenario and what it feels like at the table. I should warn you now that this podcast contains spoilers, if you intend to play Four Fathom 5, then don't spoil it by listening to the pod. Wait till later, after you've played it. If you want to be a keeper, then keep listening, as I believe that you'll get some hints and tips on how to run the adventure for your players. Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, joins me in the Zoom of role-playing rambling to discuss John Carpenter's 1982 movie, The Thing, so we can learn techniques to make our games better. There's also an I'll Get My Coat at the very end, where we discuss our closing time chatter and the gaming thoughts that are occupying us at the moment. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Book Club. So we want to welcome to the book club to talk about Full Fathom 5. Paul Fricker, hi Paul. Good morning, Dirk. And where are you coming from? Because I know that you're on your travels, aren't you, at the moment? I'm back in England. I'm, uh, at present, I'm in a bike shed at the back of one of the halls of residence at Leicester University for Continuum Con. And how's that going? It's going well, yeah. Arrived on Friday, ran a game Friday afternoon and uh, played some more games yesterday and got some more today. It's like, you know, there's Gen Con on the same weekend, but, you know, there's Continuum here in Leicester. And Continuum's got a strong role in uh, Cthulhu's history, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It used to be uh, the Convulsion Convention, which was a Chaosium-based con. So it was RuneQuest and uh, you know, Garantha and Call of Cthulhu. And that kind of continues, but now it's more, you know, it's diversified. It's not just Chaosium games. It's a, ho- it's a whole range of games on here. The standard kind of range you'd expect at most conventions. And isn't it where you and Mike uh, pitched the idea for uh, 7th edition? Yes, I believe it was. Many years ago, Yep, we uh, there were representatives from uh, Chaosium here, and that was the yeah, after a, a Chaosium seminar, as I recall, me and Mike uh, sidled up to Charlie and talked to him about a new edition of Call of Cthulhu. And uh, you mentioned you're back in the UK, because you've been down darker trails, haven't you, over recent weeks? I have. <laughs> 
Yes, been riding horses through Monument Valley and uh, and walking down into the Grand Canyon. It's been been a lot of fun. And was that a great source of inspiration? We'd love to know what was uh, going through your head as you were passing through those uh, great monuments. Well, <laughs> <laughs> my family thought it was a family holiday, but it was really a Cthulhu research trip. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think there'll be some good inspiration uh, for scenarios. It's uh, just a fantastic. Yeah, America has so many great landscapes and so much so sort of inspiring. Uh, meeting the people and the places and uh, yeah it's just great well at the book club we've been talking about full fathom five and um, so which we've uh, enjoyed having a good discussion about and uh, oh, <laughs> uh, we've got some questions for you but just to just so that if people don't are not aware of um, uh, the scenario g- give us the, um, the the elevator pitch okay, well the elevator pitch I guess is it's a scenario somewhat inspired by Moby Dick. So you're playing characters on board a whaling ship in the mid-1800s out in the South Pacific. And, you know, strange things start to happen. Beyond that, I suppose it's a bit of a, a slasher movie as well. Yeah, Moby Dick meets a slasher movie. Yeah, that was yeah. kind of the, that was the aim. And uh, you put this out on uh, the Miskatonic uh, repository. Tell people a little bit about that because that that has really grown, hasn't it, over the last couple of years? Oh, it has. Yes, yes. I mean, I put I chose to put Full Fathom Five on the repository partly because it's very much a standalone scenario. You know, you couldn't really play ongoing characters in that. It's it very much uses the pre-gens and at the end of it. I mean, somebody asked me if I'd write a sequel. I mean, I, I can kind of see that you could perhaps pick up some of the, if there were survivors, you could perhaps pick them up and play them again. But, you know, it, it wouldn't really fit into perhaps a regular book of scenarios, but it, it was very much a standalone scenario. And I think the repository is particularly good for that. But also the repository is just a, an avenue for anybody that wants to write a Call of Cthulhu scenario and self-publish it. Uh, so you're getting financially you're getting half the income from the sales. Some of it, uh, some of the rest goes to Chaosium and some of it goes to drive through RPG. It's a, it's a fairly low risk venture. If you're able to write your scenario, do the editing and get some artwork and do the, the layout. Now all that, when I say it sounds quite straightforward, when you do it, it's actually quite a lot of work. So if you have written for, you know, if you're somebody who has written something and maybe had it published in a magazine or a book or or anything like that. You've done the writing part. When it comes to all the rest, as somebody who's written stuff before, I knew there was other things involved, but I didn't realize quite how much work there'd be in putting it all together you know, to actually get it through to the final product. It's a rewarding thing to do, but it is quite a bit of work. And do um, KCM provide templates for the layout? Yeah, they provide templates for use in um, InDesign and Affinity, which is a, um, a fairly low price. I think you can get it for like, it was on offer at £25, I think it's maybe £50 for the layout package. Uh, and that's a, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a very good package for doing layout. And they also provide a lot of advice on where to get art. Um, there's lots of you know resources that you can use. Um, so 
that you know, they will offer support. I mean, partly because they've got you know they've got a vested interest in helping you to get a good product online. So yeah, and and also there's a Miskatonic University repository. No, sorry, Miskatonic repository uh, kind of support group on Facebook. So if you have any questions, there are lots of people there that will jump on and, and give really good advice. And uh, you were involved in a, an online course, weren't you, to help people self-publish and write for this? Yeah, so there's a group called the Storytelling Collective. They offer a lot of really good courses. I've done one or two of them you know, um, independently. They, they, there's a, there is a, a small cost for them, but I found them really constructive, much more so than you know, I looked at the course and I thought, oh, that might be good. It was one about creativity. I thought, well, I'll, I'll give it a go because I wanted to test them out, see what it was like because I was writing for them. Yeah, I got quite a lot out of it. It was, it was really good. So then I was invited to write the course for writing. This. So let me take a step back. They do a course on writing adventures. So it's like write your first adventure. And I think the inspiration was the uh, write a novel in a month. And it, that is just a sort of community group that everybody gets together and you can participate and you can, you know, you can write, I don't know, what is it, 500 words a day or something for a month and you end up with you know, a novel. The idea here was they'd offer a more structured course and they would provide um, sort of small lessons each day and encouragement and forums where you can go on and sort of chat to other people about the process. And through that month, if you follow the course and do the exercises and yeah, at the end of that, you should have an adventure. I think the original idea was that it was a D&D adventure and then they've offered a Call of Cthulhu path. So there's the sort of standard intro bit and then the middle sort of third is all Call of Cthulhu. Uh, so that's, that's the bit I worked on. And then the, the final bit is about um, the, the, the sort of the finishing off and the, the layout and so on. Um, so that was interesting because I've always sort of said there isn't a standard way to write a Call of Cthulhu scenario. And whilst I don't think there is, it was interesting kind of trying to structure advice on how to go about the process. Yeah. And hopefully it's, I mean, I've certainly heard some people say it was useful and, and there's been a lot of stuff published on the back of that. And although it's self-published, you have uh, commandeered uh, assistance from uh, your fellow podcasters at uh, the Good Friends of Jackson Elias. I see uh, Scott did editing work and uh, Matt did the layout. Yes, that's right. Yes, yes. And um, also John Sumro, um, another friend, well, uh, somebody I've got to know through the show, a uh, fantastic artist. I kind of decided, you know, I want John to do the cover um and he also did some internal artwork as well so i think you know if you're going to publish it's good to have some good artwork in there but it is you know to anybody considering this that is going to cost you some money you, you must have enjoyed it, doing the art direction i did yes yes uh and there was a part where on the cover there's a character in the bottom uh left hand corner i think it is I can't remember if it's the captain. Yeah, captain. Uh, but he's he's Chappelle. He's he's yeah. He's he's kind of looking at, and sort of like this with his with his arm back uh, and his face looking towards the the, the the viewer. And I had to sort of pose for that bit and say because when you're working with an artist, you've got to you know give them an art brief and then they perhaps send you a sketch. And you're like, well, that's not quite what I can mind. Can you kind of alter this bit? And it's so much easier just to 
give them a visual reference. Uh, so I thought, well, I'm just going to pose for that. And, and if you look at that, I think you can maybe see that it's me posing for that. I don't know. But uh, he, he's just really good to work with because he, he'll send me a sketch and then I'll comment on it and then he'll rework it. And it's kind of a very much back and forth two-way process. So that was, that was fantastic. And uh, one of the things uh, we should say um, at this point, we're going to start going into Full Fathom 5. And if you intend to uh, play, then fast forward now, because there's going to be uh, spoilers, I think, in this uh, discussion, inevitably. Um, so if you're going to uh, run the game, then you can carry on listening. But if you're going to play, I think you should uh, fast forward. Because one of the things that, that strikes me about this, uh, Paul, is the thing I hate about preparing scenarios is having to do uh, pre-gens for uh, convention games. And you've done 20-odd pre-gens uh, for this. Are you some kind of masochist? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the reason for that is, as we, as you've said, you know, spoilers ahoy, I wanted to have a stack of character sheets. This is inspired by a friend of mine, um, uh, Willard Foxton, who who talked to me about a scenario he'd run, I think it was maybe for Godlike, like in a Russian prison camp or something like that. And uh, prisoners, you know, they, they 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 were just getting shot regularly, and they were just civilians. Every now every now and again, that you know, if your character's getting shot, you could make a role, and if you made the role, you had superpowers and you were able to like overcome the the adversity. Uh, but that meant they were burning through loads of characters. He just had a massive stack of character sheets in the middle of the table. I thought, well, that sounds like a really cool idea. So I kind of took inspiration from that and had the whole crew there. And to do that, they've got it all beyond character sheet. And the fact they're on a whaling ship in the middle of the ocean means that that's total isolation. So those are the only 23 people they're possibly going to be in in the game so they're all there in a stack of character sheets and they've all got individual characters as well haven't they and they've got character portraits and uh, a feeling of a life on board the ship so how difficult it was it to come up with that that was a tricky balance i mean in in reference to the character portraits that was uh you know quite a bit of research online finding period photographs and then taking a time jump back about 32 years and marrying an artist, uh, <laughs> Lucy, who then did the uh, the artwork character for the for the uh, for the characters, which is which is great. So um, getting the 23 um, character portraits done, yeah, that would be that, that that was a big job. But she was happy to do those. That that was really nice. So thank you to Lucy. Getting the the character backgrounds, obviously. I think when you give players a pre-gen, it needs to be there needs to be a bit of a handle they can get hold of to play that character. But equally, sometimes you can give too much information to a player in that it's hard for them to assimilate all of that and actually portray it. And if you give them lots of information, they're perhaps constantly second guessing and say, Oh, is that what my character would do? Am I playing this right? So I really wanted it just to be a few lines, especially when people are perhaps changing characters mid-game i wanted them to be able to easily pick it up look at it and just one or two hooks that they could say oh okay that's what this character's like just enough to distinguish them some of them are fairly similar fairly early on in this scenario one of the pcs will kill another one of the uh, players uh, characters in a 
pretty graphic because this is a slasher film aboard uh, Moby Dick. So that's it. So uh, it it fairly fairly early on. So that was the thing that when I first read it, I thought, goodness gracious, I don't think I've ever done that before. There's an inevitability that that that, that character is going to die, and that's that's pretty audacious, isn't it, to to, to do that? So, well, just talk us through your thinking uh, on that, and uh, what why why it was a, a player character. When I started the scenario, it was going to be a part of a larger campaign called Poison Tree, which was a generational campaign uh, that Scott, Matt, and I wrote for Pelgrane. And it was a chapter in that book. And well, and anyway, then then that book got kind of revised and that that chapter, we dropped that chapter. Uh, and I thought, well, actually, you know, I've, I've done the work on it. I'd like to put it out. But when I started working on that, we sort of, I was given, well, not given it, but sort of came up with the outline of it being on a whaling ship. And then I had to come up with a scenario. So there was this premise of having it on a whaling ship in the 1850s. And some inspiration from the framework of the campaign but then I thought, well, I don't know what to do with this. And so I, I went through the kind of process that I go through writing scenarios and just, just writing lots about it and doing some research. And then it occurred to me, well, it's got to be bad things happening on board. And then I think for some reason, I, I started thinking about it being a series of murders. And the thing with a slasher film is the characters that you're watching that get killed. If it's, if it's NPCs, well, it's not really having the same impact. It, it would just seem seems to have be more impactful if it's the player characters. And I thought, well, you've got this pool of characters, as I talked about before, that you can replace the person you're playing with with a new character. So it just seemed like if I can contrive a way to have the player character killed off, then I, I like scenarios that do something a bit different, I guess. And yes, there is, well, there is a definite loss of agency on the player's part temporarily but they're soon replaced with a new you know it's, it's not like you're knocked out of the game so i want it to be a, a a different experience really you know something that feels different and um the way the player characters uh die is uh great uh, that's part of the thrill of it isn't it you've come up with some pretty graphic scenes um for uh the murders oh that's they... good to hear <laughs> I always, I always throw in a fish as well in the uh, first uh, murder. I know that that's not described, but um, as the the drowning in the water, I always have a, a, a mackerel coming out of the mouth as well, just for oh, effect. Oh, so nice! It, yeah, so it can yeah, flap on yeah. the deck as uh, they're dead. Yeah, yeah. I think some of those things come to me as I'm running it. I maybe don't think of those things in advance, but when I'm running it, there's a kind of intensity of thought i suppose you, you're trying to get a reaction out of players and certain things just spring into your mind's eye like the, like the water sort of bubbling up into the mouth and not stopping if i recall correctly that was just something you know that, that seemed weird and shocking that i just threw in when i was running it i thought oh, well, I'll, yeah, I'll put that in there's a lot of things in this scenario that i would expect players to do that they don't actually do in in reality so it's pretty clear the players know who did the murder, but they feel like their characters wouldn't know. Ignore this. It's a rug covering a hole. 
So I'm going to invite um, um, some questions from the uh, audience and uh, perhaps build on build on them. Um, so I'm going to invite in Chris, who's going to ask about uh, some of your experiences of playing. Uh, hi, Paul. I was uh, um, running this. I've played it twice now, once um, as GM and one or keeper and once as a player. Um, it strikes me that the, the, the play could go in all sorts of different ways, um, given the, the interaction between the, the player characters and the non-player characters and, and the, the way the player character, characters are thinking about what's happening. And I wonder what's the most kind of surprising um, twist or the, the surprising avenue that the, the players have, have gone down when you've been keep keeping? Well, I think my first big surprise was when I first ran it. And I was totally sure that when the first death happened and I gave the choice of, you know, for the whole crew and I stressed them, you could play anyone from the whole crew and they just played, I think it was just maybe the cabin boy or someone quite inconsequential. And it surprised me they didn't take someone of high rank uh, on, on board the ship. Uh, but I think, I don't think that's what you're asking about. I think pleased that there is a lot of variation, you know, when people run it and the things that people do. I mean, I can I can remember some anecdotes, but as in terms of what's the most um, out there thing that's happened, I don't know. I guess when I run it, it tends to be it tends to follow a similar format, but then people are, are working around that that structure. Yeah, I can remember Matt Sanderson playing it and uh, and being up in the crow's nest and just at some point just launching himself into the sea and just trying to swim away. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the thing that sticks with me but uh, I don't know I've run it three times now uh, Paul and at some point people's attention starts to turn towards the captain's cabin and there's some magical thing that happens that people start saying we need to get in there we need, and there must be some clues laid in the scenario along the way that that is the source of uh, uh, what's happening. And then pretty soon after that, mutiny starts to enter the heads of the crew. Yeah, I think so. I think it's when I first ran it, I felt like players don't really know what's going on. And I think I tried to make the clues a bit more heavy-handed, a bit more obvious. When Captain Chapel first turns up, and sees the murder, he's muttering to Henry Joy, you know, that that's the first one. That's one down, two, you know, two more to go, or something like that. And it's like, I'm just spoon-feeding the players things here. But they don't know whether to act on it or not, because that would be mutiny. And so you've really got to, to give them the clues and let them, or, or at least give them very strong hints, and then let them overcome their reluctance to act uh, and sort of push them. And obviously it is, you know, is something to do with the captain it's something to do with you know his conspirators and henry joy and people like that and yeah they do often end up you know trying to tackle the captain or break into the captain's quarters yeah it, it is it is wrestling with the idea of you know, when should we act and i think the early um scenes where the religious items have been stolen that's the moment when people start to really engage with um what could be going on Yes, yeah. I mean, there's some red herrings there, but also, you know, is the is the paranoia of one of the conspirators that that he thinks that the religious items will be then there are no significance, but he thinks there are significance, so he's collecting them all up and, and throwing them overboard. So it adds a perhaps some level of intrigue, and it adds in something that the players can, you know, react against. 
there's a lot of atmospheric detail that you uh, build into the, 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 the whaling ship. Did you discover things along the way um, as you were doing it? I mean, particularly, it's like that thing of uh, putting the hook through the uh, nose of the corpse as it's being chucked into the uh, sea. Right. And, uh, all those little tiny details and about the uh, pots and that kind of thing. I mean, that that particular detail about sewing up the, the um, well, not the, the coffin, but the, the, the body bag and putting the last stitch through the nose, that was inspired from Master and Commander, the Russell Crowe film. Uh, which fantastic, you know, ocean going film, fantastic film. And in that shift, in sorry, in that film, they do meet a um, a whaling ship and take on board a bunch of whalers. So that was that was a bit of an inspiration. And I did a lot of research about whaling ships and you know, searching the internet for plans of whaling ships and find out what was on board. And then you find a, you, know, you find these plans. And there's all these things labelled. I had no idea what that word means or what that thing is. So then you got to research that. And I wanted it to be, you know, as, as authentic as I could make it. And it was important to have a, you know, a deck plan and a ship plan. Uh, and also the the cast of characters, to have characters that seemed, because it's hard to know what what kind of diversity of characters would you have on board a ship like this. And, you know, having read Moby Dick, and other you know, real-life documents from the time, there was a, a pretty wide diversity of people on board the ship. I realise I'm talking about diversity in a cast of characters that are all men, and I did wonder about putting female characters in, because it wasn't, I think it wasn't particularly common to have women on board, but it certainly wasn't unheard of uh, to have like the captain's wife um, or perhaps somebody else uh, on board. It was relatively unusual, but I just decided that in the spirit of Moby Dick, I'm just going to keep it to an all-male cast on board. It just felt it would be a bit contrived to have you know, the captain's wife as well. I didn't really feel there was a role for that. But the one thing I did think about doing was just making like an alternate version with just a full female cast. But the thing that stopped me doing that was like, I don't think I can ask Lucy to do a whole another 23 character portrait. Well, related to that, I'm going to ask uh, Tristan to ask his question because it's about some other influences um, hmm. to support the uh, research. Hi, Paul. Um, you mentioned Moby Dick being um, reading inspiration for the scenario. Um, I was just curious what other nautical novels or materials were um, were inspirational in writing the scenario. Uh, there was a well, not books, but a film that came out about the es- I think it's the Essex, which was, I believe, the one of the inspirations for Melville. Uh, and that film portrays the, the Essex and its fate. And the list of crew members is is pretty much the cast from the Essex, the, the crew from the Essex, uh, with a few minor adaptations. Whether there's anything else, I think other things is just general, you know, general background research, really. But that that would be the other uh, main thing. Was, is there anything else that you would refer me to? Um, yeah, Arthur, Arthur Gordon Pym from Edgar Allan Poe. Um, ah, right. Was quite, it was quite. Um, it was quite an inspiration for Cthulhu, I think, um, and I, it has a lot of uh, quite dark themes in it as well. 
Right, yeah. I, I recognise the name from reading, I think Lovecraft mentions Arthur Gordon yeah. Pym at some point. So that I it's have to admit, one of those it's not one of read. only um, novel-length ones, so it's quite unusual. Right, yes, yes. Okay, I'll, I will check it out. And people in the reading group have mentioned Northwater. I think possibly it, that came out more recently, did it? it I think it did, yes. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, but it, it, it does have um, some uh, detail uh, that could uh, support your uh, framing of this if you're going to be a keeper. So it's worth, worth Yeah, I think, you know, whenever you're running a scenario, if you can just familiarise yourself with the, the setting and so on. So if you're running, you know, down dark trails, well, there's loads of westerns you can watch, um, but not so much for, you know, a, a Moby Dick type setting. Uh, so any of those things just to get the images and the feel of it in your head because it's very different to the modern day. I'm going to ask uh, Abs to come in. And he might not be able to contact us because he's on his way to his granite in Aberdeen. Uh, hello, can you hear me? I can, can hear you, Abs. Hi. Yeah, hi, Paul. Uh, nice hi, to see you. Uh, very evocative scenario with some great game design twists. Thank you. Um, we had a question uh, subtitled uh, the, the Barclay or Riley, and it's sort of about the genesis of it. You've touched upon it a little bit, but did you want uh, did you want them to find the sunken city so you came up with a way that a bunch of people would be around there or did you want to set out on a whaling ship and then just decided I'm going to take advantage of that or just to touch a, a, a bit more upon the, the genesis of the, of the scenario yeah I think it was very much one like I said earlier where I didn't know what it was going to be when I sort of started it so the, the, the starting premise was it's just a whaling ship and then I just explored that theme and things that could come out of it. I had the idea that it was on a whaling ship, and then the idea of a sort of slasher-type movie framework developed. But then it got to be, well, why is that? What is the, you know, what is the, what are the baddies trying to do? What is the captain actually trying to achieve? If it's the cap, kind of got to be the, maybe the captain and a few of his men. They formed a conspiracy. But what is what's the genesis of their conspiracy? Why are they trying to do this? Well, I think I decided it was something to do with Chapel's father, and you know maybe they'd seen visions out in at sea, and then you know it just sort of came to well the obvious thing is that that yeah you know, they they do sail a very long way. I remember this is one of the things that I got from reading Moby Dick. I I think without reading that and without doing any research, I would have perhaps thought well whaling ships they went out for a few weeks. And then they'd come back. That, you know, as somebody who knows nothing about it, that was kind of what I thought. And then I read Moby Dick, and it's like, no, these ships go out and they're out for years. They, they can be out for like months or, or two or three years away from uh, their home. So they, they do sail, you know, thousands of miles. I thought, well, okay, well, if they're sailing a long way, they could be sailing, you know, past Rulier. And it's called Call of Cthulhu, right? But Cthulhu doesn't appear very often, so I try and give him as much love as I can. So they get to Rillier, they they saw it at a distance once, a long time ago, uh, in a in a past uh, in a yeah, aboard a past ship. A handful of them saw Rillier, but they only saw the top sort of spires poking out of the water, and each one of the conspirators had a sort of a different vision of it, had a different sort of takeaway from it. And for the captain, it was he heard this this thing calling up to him that he sort of thinks is his father. Um, so he wants to get back there, 
Um, and then if it is really eight, I wanted them to, to be able to sort of enter it in some manner and with the Herald at the end, sort of taking them down and they kind of get a vision of, you know, going into really eight and the presence of, of Cthulhu being in there. We don't actually see him, but we kind of feel his presence. Uh, and yeah, so that, that was the, that was the route that, that, that developed through. So I did, I kind of didn't, hadn't got that in mind when I began, but it, it just kind of re- revealed itself as I kind of worked through it. Uh, Fabio made that exact point, uh, Paul, that, you know, call of Cthulhu, you very rarely see, uh, Cthulhu and, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's good to have him as a central figure in this. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a hard one to bring in, right? Cause if you stick Cthulhu in, well, he grabs one D four investigators per round and like eats them. <laughs> so he's not an easy character to bring in. He's, and if he's stomping around, well, you kind of lost. Um, so I've got a couple of scenarios where he features, but he's either like a dream vision or, you know, like in this one where you're actually visiting him rather than him visiting you. I want to talk about the finale, how it, uh, how it comes to that conclusion. And um, because, and I, I've run it and, um, a couple of people in the book club have run it and it, it is, it is a challenging scenario to run for a keeper. So yeah. what what advice would you give uh, for the staging of that uh, finale when there's multiple visions taking place and there's all kinds of uh, things occurring? I mean, I think you're right. I think it is a difficult one. It's, it's the challenge. And when I kind of wrote it down, it was a challenge to write as well, to try and, as I'm, as I'm writing these things, I try to make it as, I try to find, modes of writing it and you know perhaps like i put a table of sort of um a table of information in there to try and communicate to the reader to the keeper what's going on i try to make that as user-friendly as i can but sometimes i kind of end up making a rod from my own back and making it quite complicated uh and i do say at the start of the the book and in the you know in the listing that this is if if this is the first game you've run, you you might want to play something else because this is quite a difficult thing to manage. But equally, if you read it and you want to run it, then you know knock yourself out. Go ahead. I think yeah, you know, probably read through that final bit a couple of times and get your head around it. And sometimes if you if you have an interpretation for you that works well, then you know change it. You know go with what. Go with something that you, as the keeper, that you feel happy with. You know, so if you want to leave out an element of that, or or add in a different element, you know, great. You know, make it your own. Um, so that whole thing of some of them having visions and having almost two conflicting visions at once. I think something like that. Make a rod from my own back and. Yeah, at times or like the you know there's somebody who's a killer and there's another victim and sometimes i've i've cocked that up and like half, halfway through the game i've realized oh bloody hell <laughs> i've done the wrong thing here. uh but the players don't necessarily realize it, but uh, as, as people you're like oh yeah so it's one that is 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 tricky to run i don't know if there's any more advice that i can offer than what i put in the scenario because I wrote it and then I gave it to people to play test. 
and then I added in or, or edited the advice to try and make it as clear as I could. So it's probably more clear on the page than I could describe in words right now because you know if I just try and put it in words I'll probably make it sound more confusing I, I suppose I what I'm inter- that's helpful <laughs> I suppose what I'm interesting because I think you know it is a challenge to write these things isn't it because they're both describing something which is incredible and also giving instructions to people on how to uh how, how to do it how to stage it I'm just interested in how when you've been a keeper how you've done it have you kind of explain to everybody what's happening or do you take uh point to a particular player and say this is what you're experiencing of this how's that played out uh, at the table when you've run it yeah i tend to go around the table try to look at each player in turn and probably just go like right to left around the table and say okay well i'm going to take each of you and sort of say what you're seeing and you might sort of say okay you two this is what this is what you perceive. You know, there are characters climbing up over the side of the ship and sort of like coming towards you with their hands reaching out. Uh, other ones are seeing the the captain next to the herald. So I try and sort of personalise that. I suppose I think particularly at the climax of the scenario, you want everybody really invested and you want everybody to feel like you know I'm getting like the spotlight shone on me and, and give the players. You know, time to react as well to sort of express what they're thinking and what they're personally doing and then just try and keep all that in your head but but keep going around from player to player uh is is how i tend to approach that yeah yeah because when i when i've done it i've done it online and it obviously right. has that challenge doesn't it that uh of speaking directly to particular uh players and i think i do think um if I run this face to face, it'd be more effective because you just have that physical staring at uh, somebody and saying, this is what you're seeing. This is what you're experiencing. Yes, I think so. I think there is, I mean, when I have run it face to face, it's been, I think it's a particularly good one for being able to sort of not take people out of the room and talk to them, but just go up to, you know, if, if you can walk around the table and lean in and whisper to somebody and sort of tell them what, what they're perceiving. But, you know, I've, I tend to whisper so loud that I make sure other people can hear too. Um, it's like they're kind of, so they're getting a taste of what that, that person is, is uh, experiencing. But at the same time, they're feeling like they shouldn't hear it. But, you know, yeah, just, it's just any way you can build atmosphere, really. And there's a nice twist at the end for people who escape on the whaling boats at what point did you uh come up with that uh little that was late on i don't think that was in the first few runs i mean this 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 is a game that i ran a lot a, a lot of conventions first time i ran it at concrete cow um i had mike mason and um a bunch of other people in there um and i'm pretty sure that wasn't in there I think it just occurred to me that that one time there was a bunch of people in a lifeboat, um, well, you know, a whaling uh, boat out at sea, just rowing away from the Barclay as it, as it sank into the ocean. And I figured, well, actually, you know, Captain Marsh, he could be, he could be sailing by. They're, they're the, I think maybe I did have like a whaling, another whaling ship come and rescue them because they would have 
uh, like meetings with other ships out at the ocean, and that you know it's kind of like a a way of uh, you know meeting other people uh, that, that signal them and uh, and, and meet up. Uh, and that's something we see in Moby Dick. That happens a couple of times, as I recall. And then, well, it just seemed obvious then that that, that would be, you know, Captain Marsh. And uh, it just seemed like, like a, a, a kind of a, a comical twist at the end, I suppose. Yeah, particularly with the sea and, shanty. It's... Yes. And <laughs> who would have known that, like, the year that I published it, like, I don't know, was it like the year before last, that whole sea shanty thing just, just blew up online. Um, <laughs> And uh, but previous to that, I'd been to Necronomicon in Providence, the, the, uh, the Lovecraft uh, convention, and the HPLHS were there, Andrew Lehman and John Branning, and they run one evening in a bar. They take the bar over and they get everybody singing their sea shanties, their Innsmouth, yeah, you know, for their Lovecraft-inspired kind of Innsmouth sea shanties. They take all the traditional sea shanties and rework the words and they are you know they're great performers and they get they get about four of their cast members singing uh the uh the, the verses and then everybody joins in on the chorus in in the whole bar and uh yeah it's just it's just great fun and i thought well i've got to try and incorporate that so i got in touch with them and, and got permission to uh include uh what would you do with an innsmouth sailor uh, so you can yeah, you can download that track and you can either play it to your players or you can get your players to sing it. And I've, I've had a few people say that they did get their group singing sea shanties, which is, uh, which is great. I've got one final question from Fabio. He wants to ask about your future plans and what other things you've got. Uh, just wondering what you're up to next. Uh, and thanks for the love of Cthulhu. <laughs> <laughs> Part of what the, uh, Mystic Repository has provided for me is an avenue to put out some scenarios that I've had around for quite a while. And some of them have been previously published that I'm just relaunching. So I put out Dockside Dogs, my Reservoir Dogs inspired game. That's on the repository as well. And I've got a couple of others that I'm going to rework and put out. So I've got one that is pretty much ready to, to go, really. I just need to find the time to. To finish it off it's always like the last five percent of the work but yeah you know, as people say it takes like 95 percent of the time uh so that's um there's a sort of science fiction inspired one called uh, my little sister and that appeared in a previous collection of scenarios but that's no longer available uh and i've got permission to to put that out on the repository so that's that's going to be coming out fairly soon that's another one that's you know, it's got a, a significant twist and is inspired by another film. And I've also got one of the first things that I published, which was Gatsby and the Great Race. That was published as a, a Moolah, which which is a, a sort of publication format that Chaosium used to use. Uh, I'm going to revise that because that's, you know, that's that came out about 17 years ago. That was one of the first things I had published. And that's another game that's like quite hard to manage that takes lots of players and... Uh, and, and multiple GMs. So that's that's another one that I kind of want to get out. Once those are done, then it's kind of onto new territory, really. Um, so after that, you know, it's a, it's a fairly clear slate, but um, hopefully there'll be more scenarios to work on. And of course, you've got um, a scenario uh, that I know you've 
done because uh, I've run it. Uh, that's appearing in the next blasphemous tome. Yes, the the, uh, the blasphemous tome, which is the fanzine we do for the good friends of Jackson Elias podcast. Uh, that's been a little delayed uh, in production, but it's you know the writing I think is pretty much finished. Uh, so that's that's all pretty much ready to go. So that should be out in the next like month or so. Um, and again, you know, well, you were kind enough to let me have the audio of the of the of your playthrough, Dirk, which is always immensely helpful. Um, it's it's the best like play testing feedback that that I can get is an actual recording of the game because sometimes people send play testing feedback, but you don't really know if they did what was on the page. So they'll say, oh, you know, oh, it was good. We did this, this, and this. But yeah, it's like, well, okay, but what did you actually do? But when you, when you send me the audio, you know, I can hear exactly what you did and how exactly how people reacted to it and the bits that you, you know, you added in or the bits the players kind of added in themselves and the characters they played and, and you know, the directions it went. So that was, that was really useful. So thank you very much for that. Oh, that was great. Oh, you're welcome. I always enjoy uh, running your scenarios. I think I've given you the feedback before. That I do think the Oklahoma chapter in Two-Headed Serpent is one of the best uh, that I've run. Uh, I, I love that scenario. It's really good. Oh, thank you. It seems to polarise people a bit, a little bit. So I had somebody at Gen Con sort of say that that was one that stood out to them that you know, they didn't like so much. But... Um... I think because it stands out as as different to the others, I think. Yeah, definitely. And the so that, uh, you know that that was kind of intentional to make it different. And the Gozu ending, because <laughs> which we watched together for uh, oh good, God, friends yeah. <laughs> good friends of Jackson, good friends of Jackson. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, you have to take inspiration wherever you can get it, and you know <laughs> if it, has, it, it was inspired by Gozu. You're quite right. Yes, yes. I'd kind of forgotten that. <laughs> well, I tried to forget it. And Thank I think you. We, got, we, we even featured that in the artwork as well in the in the book. Thank you very much, uh, Paul, for uh, spending time uh, with us, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the rest of the weekend at Continuum. Yeah, th- thank you very much, Dirk. Thanks for featuring Full Fathom Five on the podcast, and uh, yeah, I will uh, I will go about. I've got another game to run this afternoon, so uh, I hope you all have a great day. Actual play. Okay, the call's gone up a short time ago. A whale spout has been spotted and there's the rasp and uh, roiling of uh, chains as the uh, boats get lowered into the sea. So three of them have been uh, lowered in and uh, each of the boats have given pursuit to different whales. Um, So right now you're in that boat and you're rowing for your lives. Um, so Isaac, uh, you're the steersman. You've got your hand on the uh, tiller and uh, shouting at the guys to uh, come on, you know, pull cat, yeah, pull cat, yeah, going on as you're uh, going ahead chasing this uh, this whale with your uh, rowing rowing oars. And the sky's clear, and the sunlight is sparkling. The spray as you go in pursuit, and. Uh, Right now, uh, the prow is rising and falling as you're making your way through uh, the sea. You're going to uh, try and capture uh, this whale. So each of you, apart from Isaac, because Isaac has got his hands on the tiller, um, do you want to shout at them, um, Isaac, to give them some rolls here? Because they've all got a roll under the strength 
and be successful. Otherwise, you you, you lose this uh, whale. Shout at a man. Shout at them. I put your backs into it, you women, or we'll lose it. I can see it. We're gaining on it. Come on, I'll be no drink for the next week. Let's go. Okay, John, roll your strength. It's a percentage. Failed. It take you failed. Now you could burn some luck. Uh, burn nine to a success. Yeah, I'll burn nine luck. Just a success. His hands are slipping off the oar as uh, he's he's going forward, but somehow he manages to catch it to keep up with the momentum. Okay, um, let's have Matthew. Uh, okay, shout so at just... him, Isaac. Shout at him while he rolls. Come on, shout at me, you dog. <laughs> <laughs> just grimly. So I'm just going to grimly pull on the oar. And when he sort of, as he sort of starts shouting at me, I'm just going to kind of look over my shoulder, spit some kind of matter <laughs> <laughs> onto the onto the deck, knowing that he'll have, he'll be the one who has to clean the boat afterwards anyway. Oh, look at that! Very nice. Yeah, strength is uh, sixty. Six day, so that's uh, you've done. You you've got a really good success there. That's uh, that's um, it, Cole. Come on, digging yeah. in. The rest of you follow suit, or be going around in circles. <laughs> okay, Silas, Silas, coughing. Going, you're new to this. Exactly. This probably... I'm looking all eager now. Yes, looking pleased. Pat me on the back. There we go. <laughs> that's it. We're gaining, lads. Come on. Come on. Okay, Herman, it's just down to you. You, you on its tail. You can oh, see it's you. blowing, it's blowing us. There she blows her, lads, get her! Oh, nice one. Okay, so you are now running alongside uh, this uh, this whale. So now's your big moment, and everybody <laughs> can shout at you, Isaac. Hold this steady. <laughs> okay, so what you have got are uh, two harpoons prepared. Um, and you've got some spares as well. And so the blade of the harpoon is sharpened steel. It's got a coil of rope attached to it in barrels. So as soon as you spear it, your the, the rope will be released to uh, capture it. So this is a big moment now. You're going to have to try and harpoon this whale throwing this uh, spear. So you've got to do a, a successful uh, throw roll here. 50. So I've got to get below 50, is that right? Yeah. yeah, yeah All right. Would it, would it help if we shouted at you? Yeah. 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 Come on, you blind bastard. I'm, the, this one. I'm in the zone now. Oh, can't get my, can't get my chat up. Oh, there we go. That's it. Right. Come on, pull. Keep it steady. That's it. <laughs> My focus. Come on, get her. In my focus is um right on the right on the spout now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Uh, Who pulled? We must have hit a wave. We hit a wave. <laughs> 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 okay. So the, the the harpoon um falls into the into the sea. Um you got away from you. Um unfortunately isaac so if you're gonna do it this time you have to do it as a hard success so you have to get 25 or under because uh you're gonna have to hurl it further with, my, with the second harpoon yeah yeah okay the steel's glistening in the sun as you can we uh, can we aid him chris can we aid him anyway you're, you're, you're rowing you're oh, rowing okay. so, so keep keeping uh... momentum okay yeah, feel like a sinking feeling. Ready? Oh! 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 Oh!
So as as it lodges into the whale, um, you become dislodged, and the coiling rope starts <laughs> to lash a barrel around the around the place. Now you're going to have to do a dodge or go overboard, Isaac. Right then. Okay. This coil is it's it's streaming out, but the barrel's flying <laughs> around the place, and in these close quarters, it's going to knock you out. Yeah, we're all leaning to the <laughs> sides, like what's up? <laughs> Just keep rowing. I've been here before. I've been here before. Yes. Oh, yes. So um, <laughs> as you do that, it, the, the barrel flicks up into uh, the air and overboard. And so uh, the harpoon is attached to the whale and the barrel, and it just goes under the sea. And just the barrel is uh, floating. Are we, are we just like, let's sit here? Are we, like, what do we, like, what do, we do? So, so the, barrel, the barrel just occasionally... Tugs. We hit it. Just watch the barrel. Wait for it to come up. So you wait for a while. Mm. Now it might be a good idea to introduce uh, each other to you whilst uh, you're waiting. The Barclay is some distance away and you're out at uh, sea, bobbing along in this uh, still water, watching the barrel move. Yeah, so I'm John Dewitt, and I'm second mate. Sure, Isaac Chase, um, born South Georgia, South Georgia Island, 27 years of age, been on and off ships my whole life. Matthew Cole, poor sailor man out of Portland, uh, is of indeterminate age because he's just so ranked in sort of filth and salt water. Yeah, Silas Coffin, <clears throat> 19, from uh, Chesapeake, Virginia. Getting to grips with the job now. I've been at sea now on this voyage, obviously, for 13 months. Herman Shepard, 26, Able Seaman, from Edgartown, Massachusetts. As, you, as you're exchanging the tales and waiting for uh, something to happen, the, the barrel seems to um, move quickly uh, towards you and then stop and just float any views on that isaac what, what you're going to do be underneath us i think we need to move away from it i mean is that a question or is that like uh you're telling us what to do like, this is what's going on in my head <laughs> um you just hear me muttering i hate it we need to row so so herman i think you're, you're in the middle of a pipe aren't you though come on row okay let's row what, we're going to row back to the ship. Which way do we just want to keep, think, head back or just, just row out? past it? Just row past it. Get away, get away. The direction yeah. we're facing. We ain't got time to turn around. Let's just row past it. Can we just, can I just have a look across to see what the other boats are doing if they've captured their whales? Yeah, as you, as you look across, uh, this would be the case. The one that led by Nathaniel West has caught a whale and they're uh, cheering and singing uh, songs. As they as they approach, looking victorious, as they as they're dragging it into uh, into the ship, and it's uh, getting ready to be hoisted aboard the uh, Barclay. Mister Chase, we've uh, you've lost already one harpoon there, sir, and I think that if we lose if you lose the second one, I don't think the captain's going to be mighty pleased there, sir. So why don't we just go up to the barrel and pull up that harpoon? Because I think that whale's dislodged it. So. We lost them both, didn't we? Didn't I chuck them both? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so 
So, 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 Herman, as you as you lean over the side uh, to recover that uh, barrel, um, you see a face in the in the water. When you look at it, it's actually the pale face of Margaret. I kind of stagger back in shock. Yeah, you're gonna to have to roll a sanity. That's not so. <laughs> Okay, you lose one D three of sanity. So, so the rest of you see Herman uh, recoil. Uh, so just half the D six. Yeah. So one. Yeah. You just you just look at you come over uh, shocked because the thing is is that reaching your ears uh, are the words, "Come to me now, and everything will be well." Gogglebox. Welcome to the Zoom of Roleplaying Rambling. You've got to be flipping kidding. I've got Blythe with me. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. This is Gogglebox. We've watched a movie uh, that was with us and around us back in the day, and we want to look at how it can continue to inspire us today. And this time we're looking at John Carpenter's 1982 film, The Thing. I have to say, it is one of my favourite films of all time. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a great. It is a great film. I know it's one of my favourites, but I, I do like it. It's what, a it, certain something. There's a certain something about it, isn't there? I think it has its flaws, but you you forgive it its flaws because there's something it's something what, about it that's that's great. Yeah. I don't know if um, you have the, these films that you default to, so I've got a stack um, by my side that I'll put on when there's nothing else on, and the. Th- the thing is one of them. The thing is one of them. Where I turn the lights out and uh, enjoy it, you know, at least once every couple of years. It's one of those I never tire of watching. I know what you mean. Uh, and I would certainly put it in that category of the films that must be watched if they're on TV. So I have I have a list of films that if they're on TV and and I can I can realise it on TV at any given point. So the not I'm not watching from the beginning necessarily because it doesn't matter, does it? Because I know the film so well. It's one of those films that if it's on, I'll watch it. It has to be watched till the end. 1982 was a great year for science fiction films. Shall I give you some of them that were came out that year? Are you ready for this? Yeah. Bl- Blade Runner. Blade Runner Ooh. came in 1982. Mm. Tron. I think mm-hmm. that's. I saw yeah. that at the cinema. These other ones, yeah, I'm not yeah. sure as I saw it at the cinema. Star Trek: Wrath of Khan, which is the best one, isn't it? It's the best. It's Star the best. Trek. That's the standard view, isn't it? It's the best, the best one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mad Max Two, Road Warrior, another wow. one of my favourites. Yeah, yeah. could have watched that. ET, but yeah. I think a lot of these films had a life because of watching them on videotape. And watching them over and over. And I think the thing is one of those. And I, I yeah. got it out. I think it's a bit later than uh, 82 that I watched it, but I was aware of it because of Starburst and I was intrigued by it, um, from the pre publicity. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have watched it in the cinema because we wouldn't have been old. We weren't old enough to watch those kind of films in the cinema. That, I think that's part of it as well. They had a certain mystique because they were forbidden, weren't they? You know, you couldn't have watched the, what would the thing have been in 1982? But it'd been an X certificate, wouldn't it? Mad Max would have been the same, wouldn't it? You wouldn't have been able yeah. to watch those things when we were in 1982. So I suppose they had that, 
that sort of mystique and mysterious quality to them, didn't they? And then when video came out, you could you could actually watch them. As yeah. you say, again and again and again. <laughs> and I um, was also intrigued by the um, earlier film, the 1951 film, A Thing from Another World, which is pretty good. It's, I mean, both of these films are based on the story, Who Goes There? So it's fairly solid, I think, the uh, setup. And I think it'd be good for us just to talk through how it works, particularly in context of Full Fathom 5, which I think uses some of the techniques that uh, are apparent in the thing to see what yeah. we can learn from creating that kind of environment in uh, gaming. Well, it's an interesting, the, the initial setup is interesting from a gaming perspective because when we rewatched it and I, and I tried to rewatch it with my gaming glasses on, you know, that it, opening scene where they're chasing the dog out there. So the Norwegians from the other base are chasing the dog and the dog is clearly infected. It's the alien, isn't it? It's the, the thing is in the dog. And when they get to the American base, no one can speak Norwegian. And there's a misunderstanding, isn't there? The Norwegian guy's got a gun and they don't understand what's going on. And then they shoot the Norwegian guy and think, Christ, he's just gone mad. The guy's gone mad and they take the dog in. And interesting from a role-playing perspective, because that is that is a high-risk setup, isn't it, for a games master? You're relying on people not understanding the language. It, that, that setup could go completely the other way where they say well I'll tell you what let's let's take the Norwegian game cup of tea calm him down and eventually he's going to tell them our dog's an alien and your whole your whole scenario's up the wall then isn't it <laughs> <laughs> unless uh, he's infected himself I think at that point well I would that's make... what you'd have to do as a, as a game master you'd have to, to twist the plot and go this has gone wrong well he's an alien too <laughs> yeah the, do- the dog's running away from him <laughs> Yes, exactly. Turn it on its head. Yeah. I mean, it's a great opening for the film. It is a great opening for the film because, of course, as a viewer, you kind of know what's... I suppose the first time you watch, you don't quite know what's going on, but you do know what's going on to an extent. You have a suspicion. And, of course, you you don't want... It's a bit like the iceberg in Titanic. Every time I watch Titanic, I always think, is he going to hit the iceberg again? Oh, come on. And it's a bit like that, isn't it? Are they going to shoot the Norwegian guy again? Oh, come on. Why are you shooting? It's just a trigger happy, you know, trigger happy player character, isn't it? It's ruined it for everyone. Essentially, they're all screwed because some player character is 90% with a, with a gun and think, oh, I'm going to use this. I'm going to shoot him. Yeah. It, it's and what my character would do. It's what my character would do. Uh, I mean, everybody <laughs> else has got their head in the hands and uh, shit. <laughs> I'm just role playing. My character is a violent psychopath. That's what he would do. Oh, what have you done that for? <laughs> I, th- I think the I think the whole setup though, um, you can learn a lot, can't you, in, in game? Because you've got the complete isolation of having the Antarctic setting. You've got the other base that is there to explore, but it's a bit of an adventure in itself to get to that base because you know, it, it, the conditions are so harsh and mm. the whole intriguing thing of what could this be what could these impressions be what could the uh, what's happened here and uh, the, the whole setup i think is a perfect gaming opening yeah uh, that's true and it, it, that that is an interesting thing isn't it the isolation and the element of how important really in a wider context isolation is in those kind of scenarios because what you never want 
in a in a horror thing is for the players to just draw on outside. You don't want them to ever ring the police or the authorities, do you? A polar exploration base is perfect, isn't it? Because even if you could contact people, there's no way they can get to you in time. So you are isolated. And that is quite central to those kind of scenarios, isn't it? Making sure that players are isolated and can't draw on help from outside sources. And that's a bit of a trick, isn't it? You've got to kind of pull in those games, I think. I think the other thing that it does very well that you could learn from gaming is it's got the character, um, I've got his name, the younger character on roller skates. And early on, he's moving through the base and he's showing you the rooms and the layout so that you've got a complete awareness of what the space is, the confined spaces that they're living. Um, so you can learn a lot from that from a, a games master point of view, the importance of making the characters when they're in a confined space aware of, right, these are the key areas. I think for Full Fathom 5, because that's got isolation in a whaling boat, the locations that the players uh, can go to are very important to it. And uh, mm. there's only a handful of key locations, but you just make sure that people, the players are aware of the significance and how yeah. constricting it is. Show them the map and say, this is this is where you are. This is the space you're in. Again, yeah. in that kind. I mean, I suppose like Full Fathom 5, on a ship, there's there's the ship, but you, the sea is irrelevant because it's the sea, and it's the same with like the thing, isn't it? There is an outside, but it's so hostile, cold. You forget that. You're trapped in this. This is the space you're trapped in. You can't go and run away, can you? Because no. you'll die. It's not just the isolation of being cut off from the outside world in terms of communicating. It's being cut off in terms of this is you have to operate in this space because outside of that space is, is just a no-go area. But it's like space stations, isn't it? Space stations, Arctic bases and ships are perfect because you can't go anywhere, can you? You can't escape. The other uh, thing that the film does really well that I think you can learn from from gaming is the pre-generated characters are really strong and distinctive and uh, physically distinctive very quickly you, you kind of associate each character with a particular type you know the laid back drug toting guy the uh the young guy zipping around on his uh, roller skate you've got the world weary doctor you know the stoical blair play played by uh, Wilfred Brimley. And he quickly established, don't you, without really the, telling you anything, that the, the, this is the character role. These are the archetypes that they fulfil. And this is the attitude to the setting and where they find themselves. Every time I watch it, I find it incredible that immediately you want McCready, Kurt Russell's character, to survive. And the, he, doesn't, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything, does he, really? He just appears yeah. on screen. It's just his natural charisma makes you realise that he's the one who's going to get out of this. Yeah, I suppose it's that funny thing they talk about the, the in Hollywood, isn't it? The star quality thing that he's he's just something about that guy as an actor where immediately you think, oh, yeah, you know, you're the you're the central character. But he's not he's not necessarily pitched that way, is he? It's not structured to say he's the central character, but he he does come across like that because of his natural charisma that he's got as an actor. Yeah. He's not the yeah. greatest actor in the world, but there's something about him, yeah. And, and the fact that the other characters 
even at the when it becomes its most uh, intense, uh, kind of defer to him, don't they? Even though they're resisting some of his uh, interventions, and he falls under suspicion of being the thing. The somehow somehow he's elevated above the others, and I can, every time I watch it, I can never put my finger on how he manages to achieve it, just by hide coming out from a hood um, with a great big beard. I don't and uh, chucking his whiskey into an apple yeah, tree. Yeah, that weird, that weird, weird floppy hat he wears, doesn't he? Yeah. Weird, <laughs> weird hat he wears. What's that about? <laughs> but you can't take your eyes off. We've rewatched it time and time again. But it's one of those films where there's a, I suppose there's a distinct difference between re-watching it and the first time you watch it. And I suppose you forget the experience of the first time you watched it because you've watched it so many times subsequently. It was a different, slightly different, becomes a different film almost and a different experience in terms of watching because you've watched it so many times, you know what's going to happen. So you're watching it in a different light. But it, but it is one of those films, a bit like Alien, isn't it? And it has, it does have a debt to Alien to some extent, where the first time you watch it, you don't know who's going to be killed off. You don't mm. know who's infected and you don't know what's going to happen. And that, is a different viewing experience, isn't it, to subsequent watchings of it, where you do know what's going to happen. You watch it slightly differently. Yeah. You know? And I had the uh, fortune of uh, watching it this time with my son, who's never seen mm. it before, and getting that vicarious experience of him watching it. And a couple of things uh, that he pointed out was that um, the fact that it was a physical effect for the thing made it, more terrifying whereas i think when i first watched it i thought it was quite a silly thing i think i laughed at it a little bit um i saw it as a humorous thing but he thought it was terrifying because it looked like it was a thing that was actually in the room rather than something yes. that had been added later it has a bit yeah well it's that, that's yeah, that's interesting, isn't that? Because they do say that, that there are filmmakers who say, no, no, the, these explosions are real explosions. We, we're doing it the dangerous old-fashioned way of, you know, say there's an explosion in a film, you can do the CGI version or you can actually do blow something up for real, in not the camera. CGI. Yeah, in-camera film uh, stunts. It, yeah. When, yeah when, it, when... It, show, it does, does show, it does come across. It is, you can, something in your brain, you can sort of tell that, oh, he really did jump across that ravine you know on a motorbike well, in, in, in the thing in the thing when they um set fire uh to to uh, the guy's transformation he walks out and he's on fire there is a man yes. on fire there is a man on fire yes <laughs> yes no but and that is interesting isn't it like your, your son seeing that and think yeah it's a man on fire whereas now it would be cgi and you, you can't tell you know, it's cgi it's not a man on fire and in a way i know what you mean there is a silliness to the special effects, but it's an odd, it's an odd combination of silliness and this kind of grotesque horror, isn't it? So it's like when the hands are cut off when he's doing the, the CPR on the chest and his hands get cut off and the chest opens. On the one hand, I know what you mean. You do laugh, but it's also a bit of a nervous laugh because it is so horrific. It's so kind of out there, isn't it? You know. Yeah. Like when the head turns into a spider thing, the head falls off and yeah. you know, all the all the chest opens and you get all that weird spaghetti stuff quivering around. 
And you do look at it and think that's that's just a load of rubber wiring being shook around. But at the same time, it, there is something creepy about it. You want a good wash after you've watched it, don't you? You realise, don't you? something horrible about it, you know. You realise that the sound effects are doing uh, a lot of work. They're carrying a lot of it, aren't they? Because the, mm. it is the yeah. sound of it um, that is terrifying. It is the, the horror. And I think... Um, Sometimes you forget about that, don't you? The sound. I, I know that when I was doing Full Fathom Five, that I was very conscious that in the the way that it was describing it, it was like a very uh, sensory experience that you have to make sure that people are aware of how it smells and uh, how it feels. And um, I think, yeah, the monster in uh, the thing really requires those sound effects. Yeah, and that's that's interesting, isn't it, from a from a role playing yeah. perspective? Because I'm as guilty as this as anyone. When you run in a game, you do forget about noises, and unless they're very very significant noises, or you can hear this behind the door, and it's very significant. But in terms of set dressing, when you run in a role playing game, it's very easy to forget about sounds, and it and it's really really easy to forget about smells, isn't it? Yeah. You no, know, you do find yourself defaulting to what players can see. Which can see this, you can see that. But what does it smell like? What yeah. does the room smell like? What does that kind of thing? And even obviously, there's there's no smell in the thing. But there they is. They respond to it, don't they? They respond they, to the smell. They, they respond. They respond to it. And as a viewer, you you get caught up in that. The, this kind of disgust, the blood and the gore of it, where you think, oh, you know, there's something visceral about it, and physical and unpleasant that yeah in some in some films with better special effects it's probably lost i'll tell you what's interesting i've watched the remake of the thing they did a, they did a it's not quite a yeah. remake it's, they do one where it's set at the norwegian base yeah i've not seen that thing, you know I, I can't i can't remember a thing about it think about it i can't remember a thing about it and that's a modern film but but the thing the original is imprinted on my brain because of those scenes where, yeah, all right, you know, in some senses, it's a dodgy special effect, but there's something about it, it sticks in your mind. Yeah. The other thing, they, they've took a lot of effort to distinguish. You mentioned um, Alien and uh, the previous uh, film, The Thing from Another World. It was a humanoid figure, and conceptually, they really go for something that is Lovecraftian, isn't it? That is beyond description. That is horrific. Is it transforms and disfigures and distorts, and as they, as they realise uh, the impact on that. I wonder whether that kind of then there was one um, scenario. It is a challenge, isn't it? Because you've got this thing that's replicating and the different characters and eliminating them uh, one by one. There's a growing yeah. uh, paranoia. So that kind of setup isn't really conducive to a role-playing scenario, is it? That kind of thing that anybody could be um, infected by this thing. People being infected by it, you could that could work in a role-playing perspective because you could do the player versus player thing where some players know that they are actually an alien they're actually infected and might act accordingly try and hide the fact and that kind of thing that might be quite interesting but i suppose what's difficult is 
if you bump player characters off very, very early, you, you know, that's difficult because you'd have to then replace them. You'd, you'd, you'd be difficult when it's half an hour in, so your character's dead hard luck. I think that's what's, that's what's audacious about Full Fathom 5, though, isn't it? That it does do yeah. that. It's a slasher movie on board yeah. uh, a ship, and characters do get eliminated, but they get replaced. And yeah, they do. And when we first played it, you, you, I was the first one to be, my character was the first one to be killed off. You, you killed him off. There was a gasp, I think. There was a bit of a gasp of people going, oh, wow. Wow, your character's dead and we're only 20 minutes in. And then, of course, we realised, oh, I see this, this where, yeah, people are going to be dropping like flies and you just get another character. Right, okay, that's fine. Yeah, so you can do it like that. Yeah, you'd have yeah. to do it like that, wouldn't you? There's no other way of doing it, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I think it just um, it it is a great horror setting, isn't it, to have that thing where you know, people are being eliminated? But it is a trick, tricky thing to do. Do you do mild? So as a concept, this thing um, that's landed out from outer space and its uh, mode of operation is to infect people, and they look on that computer, and that that computer is brilliant, isn't it? What kind of programs that that can work out how long it's going to take to eliminate the humanity? That's a bit like that's where you get the debt to Alien, though, isn't it? It's a bit like Mother, the computer in Alien, isn't it? It's a similar, very similar kind of setup, isn't it? You know. <laughs> what it reminds me of is, uh, do you remember when you got your ZX Spectrum and there was yeah. a tape on it, and it's the only thing that you had, the demo tape. And um, the first thing was um, a game where you got rid of the blocks, you know, the it's a ball against the wall at the bottom. And then the yeah, second yeah. one, I don't even remember this. Can you remember what it was? It was hares and, hares and foxes. Do you remember that? Oh, God, vaguely, yeah. yeah. So it, it was a simulation program. It was really boring, but you could change the number of uh, rabbits that were in the environment and the number of... Um, foxes, and it would calculate which uh, population would survive. Do you not remember that? I do, yeah, yeah. And I think what, <laughs> the thing with thing with the thing is that computer. What what it demonstrates is the attitude was as kids had to add to computers because he goes in and he asks it, you know, how long and all these questions. And there's this on the one hand, there's this view that computers were like magic things that could tell you stuff. They could tell you stuff. They can't really tell you stuff. Then you realise you had to program them. <laughs> I just remember as a kid thinking, hang on. So the computer will tell me things, but I have to tell the computer the things it want, I want it to tell me before it can tell me. Yeah. The point of that, this won't, this won't catch on, will it? Yeah. <laughs> well, let's face it, you got bored with that um, hares and foxes uh, simulation thing and wanted Manic Miner. So of, course you, of course you did. You went to Eugene's lair with the joylets chasing you. That's what you want. That's what computers are really for, isn't it? Let's face it. What else have they done for us? So so Blair, uh, Wilfred Brimley's character, um, is, as soon as he realises this, as soon as he realises the significance of this and that humanity itself is going to um, be destroyed, he demonstrates the sanity rules in Call of Cthulhu better than any character. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I thought that watching it, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, it is like he's failed his sanity role and 
Yeah. And he's realised the full significance full of what significance he's seen. Of, of what he's seen, yes. Yeah, full significance of the situation. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Got, he goes and isolates himself, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. As a full-on... Yeah. Um, he, he, he breaks them off, doesn't he? he they, they're already isolated, but he ensures that if this yes. thing gets out, this thing is, can't get out of the base. And so yeah. he further isolates them and uh, destroys everything so that they can't uh, get out. Perfect example yeah. of uh, Call of Cthulhu sanity rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Realises the full significance and then loses enough sanity to go uh, temporarily insane and smash everything up. Okay, we need to uh, talk about the end of uh, mm. the film and the final confrontation, so it's uh, leading to this. And in, in some ways, um, the monster has already spent its um, best uh, appearance, hasn't it? Because the best appearance is when they're testing the blood and uh, you get that jump scare. Always uh, makes you jump, doesn't it? Don't matter how many times you watch it. Every set gets me every time that. <laughs> I must do, I know what's going to happen, but every the... time. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, so by this, this point, I think the monster's shown its hand. So mm. um, Carpenter then goes about um, disguising it a bit again, doesn't it, by putting it under the floorboards and uh, ripping up the floorboards and its appearance uh, um, kind of becomes a bit more oblique uh, again. Um, and we're left with this sensation that um, the two remaining uh, characters are ultimately going to cop for it, but you don't know, do you? It's just drawn away and you're left with a satisfying ending or uh, a, a, an ambiguous ending? I don't know. What do you think? It's just, it's definitely a strange ending. And I have read things where people don't like it and find it dissatisfying. And I suppose going back to the beginning of the film, the film starts in such a strong way, doesn't it? It's such a strong start to a film where you get the dog and the mystery and then all this horror stuff going on and the build up and the paranoia and all great and then I suppose there is you could criticise it by saying at the end it feels a bit like a damp squib because you just think oh right okay I don't really know what's going to happen there I presume they're going to die but then I'm not sure whether they are I mean you wonder I don't know enough about the history of the film but was it was it a setup for a sequel yeah. I don't. Was it a setup? Did, 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 did they Possibly. think there's the sequel potential in it? So let's leave it hanging, you know, and and we could go back to it. I don't know. Possibly. I mean, some some people have said that it's kind of a brave ending because it leaves that kind of ambiguity, um, yeah. and it's not fully resolved. Whereas, like nowadays, we seek full resolution. All the um, plot ends tied into a neat bow at the end. And uh, but I I think it. It's it, it's the issue that you have with uh, scenarios like this is that the resolution is always unsatisfactory. It's always difficult to bring it to a satisfactory end because, let's face it, you've got yourself into that position where it can only really go uh, one of two ways. The monster's defeated or they're defeated. And because you've invested so much time with these characters, it, it, it's kind of drawing a veil over the ultimate 
demise, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose so. I, I know what you mean. The difficulty is that part of the horror of the film is that you've built this monster up to be undefe- undefeatable. It can't be defeated. It's it's everywhere. It could be. It could have infected one of them at the end, couldn't it? For all yeah. you know. Um, and, and going back to the doctor um, smashing up all the stuff and realizing that if it gets into the human population, then we're we're screwed, kind of thing. You built that up, and this happens. It does happen in scenarios, doesn't it? You build up and build up and build up a monster or a foe or an enemy, and then you dealing with it at the end is difficult because, as you say, if if you defeat it, that feels like a damp squib because you go, oh, this thing was undefeated, it couldn't be defeated, but they've defeated it. But equally, if it kills off the, all of them, that can be undecided. Yeah, exactly. it, it is it's difficult. I, I suppose the way the way to do it and the way some films do it is a kind of light bulb moment where it seems that it can't be defeated, but then there's a moment where the characters go, oh, of course, we, we can defeat it by yeah. doing this. You, you would say it's like, like Terminator 2, isn't it? Terminator 2, where he's kind of into liquid metal and they do find a way, he he's kind of can't be defeated, but at the end, there's this moment of, ah, of course, that's you would, the you way. You would say that. Be. You would say that because that's how you want um, scenarios to end, isn't it? You want the monster <laughs> defeated. You want the, like, you feel, you walk away and think, ah, uh, it's unsatisfactory if you don't defeat the monster or find the fix, you know. That, well, yeah, I suppose, I suppose so, yeah. But, yeah, you're right. That is my, as a player, that like, I do enjoy that in role-playing games of feeling, the feeling that you you can't win, you can't defeat it, and then the, the moment where you go, of course, do this, let's do this. That's one of the joys of role playing. Where Would you, you get ever, yourself out of a sticky situation? You know, a convention game. You're down to the last mm. uh, two players. The monster's still in there. Mm. Would Would you then say, okay, let's leave it there? At that point, no, 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 I wouldn't. And I have played. I have played in games i have played one or two games at conventions what one in particular where there was a sense that you could do nothing you could do nothing to to defeat the the monsters you were all doomed and that that became apparent about three an hour three quarters of an hour to the end and i think the mood on the table changed a bit there was a sense of oh well whatever yeah right yeah i'm dead Okay, you know, shrug. Yeah, right. Because from a player's perspective, you just think, ah, I see, I'm just being yanked along here by by this the games masters. Me yanked along by the story, and there's nothing I can really do. I'm not I'm not allowed to to do anything. And there was a, there was <laughs> there was a moment where one player said something like, "Well, can I not run? Can I not run? Can I not?" And he said, "No, no, I'm sorry. I have to draw a veil over your character's doomed. He's dead. And everyone's all oh, right. Okay." I mean, some people like that, don't they? But I, I'm not a massive fan. I'm not a massive fan as a games master of doing that. I think if I was a games master, I'd, I'd love to run a game that had lots of horror in it and felt very tense and felt that players were doomed. But then I would always like the players to go, ah, let's do this. And maybe one or one survives, you know. Like It's like Alien, isn't it? You know, in the shit, in the shuttle at the end. That's a great ending for a role-playing game. One player's alive, they're in the shuttle, Oh, the alien's still in the shuttle. 
what are you going to do? You know, the, all those stealth rolls, putting the spacesuit on and, and then hitting the uh, the door so it's sucked into space. That, for me, is a brilliant ending to a horror game. But a, a monster that seems cannot be defeated. It's killed all the other player characters. One player's the last one. What are they going to do? They're now trapped on the shuttle. Talk about a different film now, aren't we? They're trapped <laughs> on the shuttle with the monster. What are you, you know, and that, that for me, is a perfect ending to a horror role playing where the one player has managed to survive in a very clever way see i i would be tempted if this was my scenario because the whole thing of it is the cosmic horror isn't it of uh, that they've come face to face with something out of this world and it we're humanity has never faced anything as horrific as this and it's been trapped in the snow and it's finally released my ending i would have had a helicopter a rescue helicopter appearing and then yeah. you've got the players with the dilemma then don't you do we get get on yeah, board yeah. it or do we refuse it and sacrifice ourselves well what what i would do as well what good ending i'd put in as well is you could do that that's good ending but also maybe you let them defeat this monster and they escape but at the very end of the scenario they have to make a roll to see if they're infected yeah and if they're infected that's humanity's doomed <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing that's all right that's okay yeah. That, that's kind of fun isn't it that yeah you've won but you've not really won kind of thing yeah but i think there is that problem of i think we talk about this a lot don't we but player agency that once you have a horror scenario where players suddenly feel that agency is taken away and they're just passengers in a horror story and they're doomed can be problematic it's problematic for me as a player and a game i don't I wouldn't like to run games like that and i wouldn't like to necessarily playing games like that yeah okay you can do that it's all right you know it's not the worst thing in the world but i like a bit of player agency i like my players to have that agency where they can fix things if they're clever enough and i also like as a player the idea that you know yeah we're coming to the climax of this scenario there is a way out of it it might not be that's not you know it's not that the players can't fail i'm not saying that there's a difference between players failing and players not being allowed to succeed or fail because it's just a horror story and you're just bobbing along this and the current of this horror story, not nothing you can really do about it. Yeah. is always a little bit dissatisfying for me as a player. Yeah. And I think um, by the very fact that you're doing horror, you're putting some of that player agency at stake because horror works like that doesn't it that you you know you as we've mentioned before isolation that the odds are stacked against you and you're facing oh, yeah, a yeah. Cert, certain doom i do think that um for a convention game or a, a one shot or something like uh full fathom five it's all right um as long as you telegraph that up ahead and people know that it's that kind of thing it's a slasher film it's a it, it it's a survival kind of adventure Oh yeah, the the odds being stacked against you is is great. That that's that you say that's the nature of horror, isn't it? The idea that you feel, God, we're not going to get out of this alive. What are we going to do? But 
for me, for me personally, once you say to players, or once players get the feeling that ah, nothing we can do, the the buzz goes out of the game, the life goes out of the game a bit. I think, yeah, because role playing games are all about agency and difficult situations, taking risks and having ideas. That's the whole fun of them for me, anyway. I don't just want to be a passenger on some games master's power trip of horror. That's not that's not for me. And nor do I want to be that games master having that horror power, horror power trip of just snuffing out players. The you know horror, horror power trip. Did you say Sign horror me up. power trip? <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> Go and see yeah, you, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for that. And uh, I think I'm going to watch it again. I think I am going to watch it again. <laughs> I'll watch again, unless Gladiator's on, in which case I'll watch that. (laughs) Cheers, Blader. Bye. Are you looking for a D&D podcast with a dark side? Something more like Game of Thrones and less like Monty Python? Tale of the Manticore is part dark fantasy audio drama, part solo D&D RPG. There's no plot armor here. The dice make all the important decisions. Join me as I resurrect the excitement, wonder, and emotion of old-school D&D. Made for a mature audience, Tale of the Manticore is both a fiction and a game. It's the story where chaos rolls. I'll get me caught! Okay, we're heading towards the virtual door. We're coming to the end of another podcast, and this is a time when we uh, put our coats on and we slowly can't get away from each other, so we're just chatting away uh, on the things that are occupying our thoughts so blithy what are you thinking of at the moment we've started pirates of drinax haven't we i'm running pirates of drinax and a long-term commitment to our saturday morning group signed up um to that and we created characters we we went through traveler create character creation process as a group didn't we uh, which was a, brave, was a lot, was a lot brave and audacious thing to do i i'd say it was uh well, it was, but it does it does say in the rule, but it does recommend in the rules that you do it as a group, and you can see why, can't you? Yeah, you know, because uh, as you're going through that life path, there are various intersections where you can bring in other characters and get yeah. advantages, isn't there? Yeah. So as this rule, the connections rule, where it's probably worth saying, it's very similar to the original travel, but it adds in certain life events. So you every term in a certain whatever career you're in, you roll a life events table or a mishap table if you fail your survival roll. You don't die, but you get mishaps. And what you can do is bring in other player characters around the table into those life events. So if you, you know, for example, in ours, Andy's character was... Well, Jonathan's character was in prison, wasn't he? And Andy's character was a Varga, was on a peacekeeping mission. And we said, on this planet... There was an amnesty and some of the prisoners were let out. Some of the, the low-risk prisoners were let out of prison. And Andy's character, uh, as a peacekeeping force, supervised that and met Jonathan's character, that kind of thing. Yeah. So you can bring – and it does does work really well, actually, bringing, bringing around your characters. It was a bit like the Persuaders, wasn't it? Um, mine and John's character, um, you know, the – opening montage of the persuaders where you've got uh, roger moore's character who's got a lot of charmed life and you've got tony curtis who you know lives on the streets of uh, brooklyn and gets raised up we we, we both side off as rogues um doing a hit he got arrested 
and I decided to make a deal with the target for a, a favour to be uh, recovered at a later date. I went on to university whilst he was in prison and um, our, our stories kind of went together. All I wanted to be was an officer in the army and yeah. I didn't get there. But as yeah. he was made, he, he found some secret um, psionic institute and became. That's right. He was. He, he did. He stumbled. Yeah, he was recruited. He found the psionic institute and got psionic powers, didn't he? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was good as well because although you and John character were human and his character was a Varga, I think what came across was the idea that even though you were human, you were you were your home planet was probably in the Varga extents. Yes. You know, maybe that's why you never got the officer rank because you're not a Varga. Yeah. You're in the army with Vargas, but as a human, sidelined a little bit, that kind of thing. And it did it really good because it did paint a great picture of why these three characters know each other. Um, you also all ended up, I think you ended up with an enemy, didn't you? A Varga enemy. Yeah. So again, you've done a runner to, to Drinax on the other side of the galaxy to get away from that character. Of course you won't. Yeah. That, that villain's going to come after you know that but you know it makes yeah. sense as to why you've all done what you've done and gone where you've gone but it was it was a lot of fun actually really good yeah, yeah. it just goes to show doesn't it and we've said this before haven't we that creating the characters is part of the game and in many ways it was like a, a whistle top through a, an entire campaign uh, that lasted for years and years but we managed to do it in uh, in a couple of yeah. hours yeah, we've done this before. We did it with Mutant Year Zero, didn't we? It was the same group, and people had said it was great to roll, roll characters as a group, form those connections, and this was the same. Yeah. 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 Good way to do it, because you feel already that you've got living, breathing characters before we even start. And um, that group in particular, that uh, on a Saturday morning particularly, um, goes for that kind of approach, doesn't it? So it worked really well. Yeah. My um, my closing time chatter, the thing that's uh, occupying my thoughts, is later on today we finish Children of Fear, which we started uh, this time last year, didn't we? Uh, Call of Cthulhu, Lynn Hardy's uh, epic campaign uh, through China and um, northern India, and the Spice Roads and uh, around Tibet. And, um, yeah, we, we've, we've come to the uh, finale We've talked about um, the thing and its conclusion. I have that sense of dread as a games master, as if we can resolve <laughs> this in a satisfying way, because the whole campaign, in essence, has been collecting items for uh, a ritual that is going to be performed at uh, eight o'clock, or quarter past eight tonight. We start to perform the ritual. And <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, it, it's staging that kind of thing. Always a challenge, I think because of the things that you mentioned when we talk about a thing, how much can you as uh, players impose yourself or decide the way things are going because there is a sense of momentum um, because necessarily a ritual follows a process that you'll be part of, but what opportunities will you have to either disrupt it or just impose your character into that situation? Yeah, it is always a tough thing ending those big campaigns. Every time I've ended one, it's always been... I, I wouldn't say it's not been unsatisfactory. Sometimes it's worked, It's worked, but it, the, there is that nervousness that, yeah, how do you how do you end it before the final credits roll? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
you're going to end it in a, a satisfactory way. But Children of Fear has been really good. It's been a really interesting Cthulhu campaign because, as I think we may have said before, it's not really – it is Cthulhu, but it's not conventional Cthulhu, is it? It doesn't quite draw on the mythos in the same way. So, as I think some of the players have said, you can't quite second-guess what's going on because no. it's not the conventional Cthulhu yeah. stuff. It, it disarms uh, players who want to metagame it through their knowledge of yeah. the background and the the setting, and uh, because it creates its own setting, it creates its own world, nineteen uh, twenties yeah. in that uh, particular location, and creates it like it's um, a fully realised, almost fictional setting because it weaves in historical information with. Um, the plots and what's going on but it it's an adventure it's an adventure isn't it it's a it's a treasure hunt it's a a, a chain of seeking out MacGuffins. it relies i think quite heavily on the cultural elements of of where you are in the world at that time in history so you know you're you're encountering cultures and peoples that it's not just about dealing with the cthulhu stuff it's also dealing with the cultural differences without without giving too much away. There are a couple of bits that are quite probably quite stark cultural differences that you have to get your head around as a player. Their culture is very different from our culture and you have to kind of engage with it. Yeah. Can't say too much because it's spoilers, isn't it, for people, <laughs> but there's one there's one bit in particular where there is a real culture clash in terms of their culture's attitude to death and our culture's attitude to death. And that is quite interesting. You know, whole whole scenario really was about about that. We've got uh, lots of uh, gaming to look forward to after the desert of the summer. So um, getting back into it. Nice one. See you later, Blythe. See ya. Hey, sure, it's my round. Thank you to Paul for taking a break from his attendance at the busy Continuum Convention to speak to us from behind the bike sheds. I really enjoyed the discussion. We have another Meet the Author in November. Bud from Bud's RPG Reviews will be talking to us about Viral, his modern-day Cthulhu scenario, which he co-wrote. You'll have also heard the advert for Tale of the Manticore, which I appeared in as Lord Rabbit. Listen out for that. Hot on the heels of this particular podcast will be the next part of our Savage World episode where we'll talk about settings and powers. Please like and subscribe and tell your mates. And until then, adios, amigos. And it's all for me, Boots, we're noggin' noggin' boots